Hello everyone and welcome to another episode in the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today our guest is a current MP. She first became an MP in 2001 and held that seat right up until 2015 when she lost out to Tom Elliott of the UUP by 530 votes. However, in 2017 she reclaimed the seat from Tom and on December the 12th she hopes to defend this seat. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome along the MP for Fermanagh and South Throne, Michelle Gildenew. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks, Amelia. Um, Michelle, before we continue, Shared Ireland would like to state and put on record for all our listeners here that we actually sent a request out to one Remain MP, which was yourself, and one Leave MP, who I won't name, in order to give balance. Um, so you kindly uh, took us up on our offer. Um, so that's very much appreciated. Um, Michelle, I guess we always like to start off each podcast by um, letting our listeners know a little bit about you as an individual, your early years, what life was like, and I suppose ultimately what shaped your political thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, first of all, I'm delighted to take part in this uh, Shared Ireland podcast. Um, This is the first time I've done it, so uh, I'm really pleased that that you're here today. Um, I'm the one of 10 children, the eldest girl in a family of 10. I was born 1970, so uh, hitting a big birthday next year. Like myself. <laughs> um, I was born in the Brantry, County Tyrone, um, which is comprised of 18 townlands. It's a wee rural area, kind of tucked in amongst the drumlands there between Ochnacloy, Bamboor, Beglish and Caledon. Um, I'm currently married to Jimmy Taggart. We've been married 20 years and we have three children, Emmett, who's 17, Eunan, who's 14, Anisha, who's 11, and we continue to live in the Brantry. You've got your hands full. I do indeed. Um, I went to primary school in Caledon and secondary school in St. Catharines in Armagh and then attended um, Coleraine University for a period of time, which I didn't, unfortunately, complete my degree. I suppose I grew up in a big house. I mean, we had... My family had participated in the squat and then the subsequent eviction in Caledon mm-hmm. in 1968-69. And I suppose that certainly shaped um, my opinions. Big family of us, we'd have sat around the table, drunk tea and debated all the ails of the world. Mm. And, you know, we'd have talked about current issues, we'd have talked about what was happening in the world, particularly in our own part of it. And always with a sense of that Republican, those Republican values of treating everybody the way you'd like to be treated yourself, mm-hmm. equality and respect and integrity. And I think that's how we conducted ourselves. And we certainly had great relationships with all our neighbours, regardless of um, their religion or, or political affiliation. Yeah. So um, grew up knowing about Caledon, obviously grew up knowing that, you know, having a strong sense of justice and what was right. Uh, my mother, my my parents, my grandparents had been active politically before I was born and when I was 12 or 13 my mother suffered terribly from arthritis and um, she would have went out and helped people get postal votes and things in elections when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Obviously the first one of those was the election um, where we saw Bobby Sands elected as the MP for Fermanagh South Throne. And I remember saying to Mummy, why is this election so important? Because I knew she'd been active in other elections, but this one, I could sense, was different. Yes. I was 10 when Bobby went on hunger strike. So um, 
So very conscious of that. And I remember I asked mommy, why was this one so important? And she said, because this election could save Bobby's life. Mm -hmm. And as we know, it didn't, that of his, didn't save his life or that of his nine comrades in Longkesh and the women who joined them in Armagh. So 10, 11, the hunger strike happened. Those brave men died one after another. Maggie Thatcher's intransigence was obvious even to me as a child. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly that shaped my political future and it changed the hunger strike changed my life so when mummy was out collecting postal votes and things like that should have taken me along to help her so i suppose i'm an activist you're, since you're I'm about, a canvassing from an early age i was i was there's no there's no exaggeration there i really was at this from i was no age and um had it participated in, in a lot of elections went to school went to college things were happening as i was growing up and you know you couldn't you couldn't fail to, I mean, the checkpoints that we had to traverse every time we crossed the border were a, a huge part of our lives. Um, and just you mentioned there the checkpoints that you had to traverse every time you crossed the border. For any of our listeners that aren't just maybe familiar with the geography here, how far is the border from your home place? As the crow flies from where I was born, the border is about three miles. Three miles. Yeah. So it was a daily occurrence Absolutely. then for you? Absolutely. And all our members of the community, obviously. Yeah, and of the family. And how, what sort of an impact, again, for the benefit of those listeners, um, what sort of an impact, honestly, did that have on, on people's lives? I think at the time, you know, you, you it was it was normal. You grew up mm. knowing that you were going to be stopped and searched. You grew up with all kinds of memories my earliest memory is of a raid on our house mm -hmm. and you know the place getting pulled apart and mummy sending Mandy Bernie down to the, the room to take the children out of the way huge big Alsatian dog dripping over me and everything so that was no that was our normal and you said a raid there not a rave no definitely a raid <laughs> definitely a raid and there were quite a few of them over the years and so they became something again that you got used to mm -hmm. and I suppose you know, you knew that they were going around, they were tearing rooms apart, they were reading letters and opening books and all of that. But they were identifying who lived, who, who slept in which room, who slept in which bed. And what and was, why do you think um, they wanted to do this? Well, the harassment, well, they'll say it was to stop terrorism. Um, I would take a completely different view of that, obviously. Um, I think it was about reminding you that they were in charge and, and that you, you had no say. We were definitely second-class citizens at that time. Um, there was also some very sinister attacks. I'll never forget the attack on the Shields family home a few miles away. And the Shields were friends of ours. And when they went in, when the army, the British army went into that house, they knew exactly who they were targeting was and where Pat they'd be. and Dermot Shields Pat and from Lesson Aglier, not That's too right. far from you. That's right. Mm -hmm. And they knew they knew who who slept in which room. They knew where to find the occupants of the house. So, so that would have been one of their uh, benefits, as they would have seen it coming into your house, identifying which rooms in case possibly they wanted to go down that route with your family. Absolutely, absolutely, and we know that. I, a good friend died um, when I was in my early twenties, and a friend of ours was going to Australia to travel. I'd left college at this stage. I'd been to. The States done a bit of traveling. Um, a friend of mine was going to Australia and asked me to come. And initially, I said I wouldn't. And then, when Mickey O'Neill was killed on the Balagoli line, I thought, you know what, life's too short. I'm going to go. So, by that stage, Claire had her arrangements made and she was going on. I was going to join her. But on the day that I got my visa, 
one of my brothers got word from the security forces, so-called security forces, that his uh, details were in the hands of the British Army. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what I was going to be coming home to yeah. or when I might have to come home early. Mm-hmm. So you always had that sense of trepidation and concern about the people you love. Um, when I, I went to Australia, during the time I was away, two of my uncles and my father was badly beaten. Two of my uncles were shot by the RUC in Middletown. And like I say, my father was badly beaten. And Middletown would have been one of the those checkpoints that we'd have known well that that area as when well. When you say shot, shot dead? No, not shot dead, thankfully. Both of them shot, um, one in the upper thigh and one around the knee and thankfully nobody was killed. Yes. But it was a very frightening, very harrowing situation for everybody and my youngest sister witnessed it. Mm-hmm. And she was only very young at the time, probably I don't know, four or five at the time. So um but we'd had attacks on the family. My granny had been shot at in her house and bullets ricocheting around the living room. My uncle was a bomb under an uncle's lorry. This was something that we were kind of used to. Um, at the same time, I had uncles in Long Cash. I had an aunt in Armagh Jail. Um, so, you know, there were... Um, I thought that was everybody's normal. My, um, I'm just laughing here because my next question was going to be, was it always going to be Sinn Féin and maybe <laughs> the SDLP? Would that have been a choice? But just listening to you, um, I think, um, no, I can, I can understand. Yeah, I got away a bit on a tangent, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, but, no, no, no. But basically, I suppose, I travelled, I, I experienced a life outside Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I came home, and my first weekend home, there was another raid on the family home, I peeped under the blind and I could see the the metal grill in front of over the light. Mm-hmm. That's all I could see this headlight and the metal grill and I knew exactly who it was. By that stage the first IRA ceasefire had been called. Mm-hmm. I was away when that happened. Right. And I came home with a high sense of expectation that things would be different. Yeah. Okay. And clearly they weren't. No. And that night they used a gas cylinder to try and put in our back door. So and, and when you say they the British Army. Okay. The British Army, yeah. And another one of those countless raids on our home and again nothing found nothing untoward yeah. but you know that reminder again we can come into your home whenever you like we can do what we like mm-hmm. and you just have to suck it up mm-hmm. so i thought well i'm not sucking it up and um started going to Sinn Féin meetings was brought by a very good friend of mine to art corlea plus meetings in dublin and became the south throne organizer from there, I worked in the international department, and I was asked then, I was asked to do an internship in the Washington office, which didn't work out, but I suppose give me a, a taste for for getting involved yes. at, a, at a higher level. At a higher level, very good. And I was then asked by the party to be the London rep for Sinn Féin. So I was back and forward to Downing Street during those negotiations in the run-up to the Good Friday Agreement. I was in the first Downing Street meeting. I seen you entering number ten. Yes, yes. as a as a very fresh faced twenty something year old. Still fresh faced. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that fresh faced anymore, but yeah, I, at the time I didn't think it was a big deal. You know, and you don't it, like I say, you grow up with your sense of normal. But lo- looking back on it now, I guess even you must look back and say, "Wow, you know, was that really me?" Like, because it was such a a monumental uh, moment in our history. It was, but like I say, it was, we'd lived through monumental moments and 
you just took it all in your stride. Yeah. And even yet, we've never really, we've never really stopped in all that time. It's just been go, go, go. And it's only, I suppose, when I'm looking back on my life and I think, do you know what? I was lucky. I had great opportunities. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it's a big compliment, um, Michelle, looking back that the party had such belief in you. Uh, I know you weren't going to negotiate on your own, but to be part of the leadership of the negotiating team entering into Town Down the Street, that must have been ranked someone amongst one of your most um, standout moments, I guess. Would that be fair? Well, that would be fair um, when I think about it, mm. because I've had I've been lucky enough to have had lots of standout moments oh, too. Course, yeah. You know, so yeah, we went into Downing Street that day and Tony Blair in his opening remarks said that there wouldn't be a United Ireland in the lifetime of the youngest person in the room. Which was you? Which was me, by a good way of it. And Martin and Martin McGuinness and Derry Adams and Siobhan O'Hanlon <coughs> and Brester, Martin First, Richard McCauley, myself, Lucille Devrana were mm-hmm. all in the room. And uh, Jerry said, you know what, if I was told 10 years ago I'd be sitting on Downing Street with the British Prime Minister, the Labour of the Leader Party, with your majority, mm-hmm. I'd have said not in my lifetime too. Very true. And you know, and I think Jerry always had that ability to put things in a way that people went, Okay, mm-hmm. I didn't think of it like that, but now that you've mentioned it. Mm-hmm. So I was really lucky to be guided by fabulous people in Sinn Fein as I'll be, well. I'll be looking forward to reading your book whenever oh. you read it. <laughs> <laughs> when I get time to write it. <laughs> Michelle, before we get into the cut and thrust of things here, um, We've got um, one of our own on um, I'm a Celebrity at the minute, um, mm-hmm. Derry Girl and the Dean Coyle. If you were in the jungle, what would be your biggest fear be? Oh, I don't know. Heights, I think. Heights? You're uh, not good with heights? Definitely not good with heights. Um, I think I could handle the snakes and the rats and <laughs> stuff like that. Not down about spiders, but heights is definitely a thing I'm not, not crazy about. No problem at all. Right, Michelle. Um, I also wish Nadine the best of luck. If, um, of the hope course. Is, let's hope we have a, a dairy queen of the jungle That's this year. Wouldn't it be great to see <laughs> it? Absolutely. Michelle, if I just arrived from outer space, some people would suggest that that's where I live anyway. But <laughs> tell me why I should put a next beside your name on Thursday the 12th of December. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure there's no borders in space. And Ireland is partitioned. And when you see it from space... You can see how beautiful it is and the, the Emerald Isle glistening in the Atlantic Ocean. And you would look down and think, who in the name of God would think about partitioning that beautiful country? And an X beside my name means that we have an MP in Fermanagh South Throne who will continue to remove that border from both the physical infrastructure, which thankfully is, is no longer a presence, but could be. But removing the border in hearts and minds as well, and in trying to build communities, trying to integrate further the communities along the border. I had an event recently and I ended up in Mullen, a wee village, not far from my home. And my children had never been in it. And it was it was actually closer to our house than Eglish or Caledon or the Moy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we hadn't we just hadn't I'd grown up with a hard border and roads blown up and never was never gravitated that direction yeah and that's a pity that's terrible and i don't want my children to have the same experience so need to make sure there's no more hard borders in ireland ever again that we can continue to unite our country and that we can continue to build an ireland that everybody can be proud of what's your biggest achievement as an mp to date um i would say one of the biggest achievements would be um lobbying for the hospital 
in Enniskillen. Okay. Um, we lost South Throne when I was much younger. We've we fought to maintain services there, and we now have the busiest minor injuries unit in these islands. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very proud that we didn't capitulate and allow services to be taken out of South Throne. But we also have an excellent health facility in my constituency with the best stroke unit again on these islands. We need to build on the success of that hospital. We need to retain services in it and enable our people to have access to quality healthcare. Do you believe that your input as an MP directly affected the benefit of creating this hospital in this skill? I do, I do. And other achievements, I mean, my experience as an elected rep and an activist, a Sinn Féin activist in Fermanagh South Throne, means that I knew what the issues were. So when I went into the Department of Agriculture as the minister in 2007, it was my own life experiences mm-hmm. that shaped the work that I did. Yeah. So you can't take, I suppose I don't take anything in, in isolation, mm-hmm. but when we, I went in there, not only was I out of there to work for farmers, it was to work for the rural, the entire rural community. So we brought in, we, we brought in money towards things like rural fuel poverty, mm-hmm. rural broadband, um, suicide awareness, um, childcare, rural childcare is still a massive issue fuel poverty, I mentioned, rural transport. Those are issues that people were saying to me on a day-to-day basis mattered. If you can achieve great work like that without taking your actual seat in Westminster by adopting the abstention and abstentionist policy, imagine what you could achieve if you actually did sit in the benches and vote on things. Would that be a fair comment? I don't think so. Having been in London before devolution, mm-hmm. there was very little votes in that place that had anything to do with the people that I cared about. And I was there, I was in the public gallery listening to those debates. And that was, like I say, pre-devolution, when we were supposed to be an equal part. Yeah. Um, I believe the influence that the Sinn Féin MPs have is far beyond that of any other uh, MPs. You've seen that in a recent poll this week. Um, we're, we're taking our influence right into the heart of government so when the last two border crossings had to be rebuilt i was talking about those in the t-shirts office in leinster house and in number 10 downing street Bertie heard and tony blair were sick listening to me harping on about knocky guinea and anna row bridges two bridges that link the communities in Toronto and Monaghan. Mm-hmm. but we were able to lobby and to to get things done at that level i think when you see the chaos and the sheer disaster that Westminster has become you go what is the benefit of going in there sitting on the green benches beside Jacob Rees-Mogg hopefully not with his head in your lap and trying to I think it's 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 just a, a silly distraction a lot of the time an awful lot of those votes are meaningless I know there's there's people within the SNP who are talking about the influence that we've had and asking themselves should their MPs become abstentionist just listen to you there by saying that you know it's pointless nearly because not a lot of votes actually happen and people lie and sleeping as we all famously seen the photograph of um, Jacob. But if, if it's that irrelevant, what's the point in sending seven, eight, nine, ten MPs over there then? Because we have a mandate to speak on behalf of the people. And But are you actually speaking on behalf of the people if you don't take your seats? Absolutely. Taking your seat doesn't we're not taking your seat doesn't prevent you from, speak, from speaking on behalf of the people. And our MPs have been in London and Dublin. They've been in Washington and Brussels. They've been making their voice heard where it matters and where it's understood. And when you saw the House of Representatives voting unanimously this week to not enter into trade talks with Britain 
if the Good Friday Agreement was damaged in any way. That's the influence that we bring to the table. And we can't do that without those seats and without those seven, eight, whatever amount of MPs we have after this election, we need to continue. Because we speak for the nationalist people, far and away, the biggest party in nationalism, we represent thousands and thousands of people. And that's why senators and Congress people in America, that's why European officials and elected representatives take us seriously. So effectively what you're saying is the people that elect you as an MP, they know your policy. So they, by them voting for you, are actually endorsing your stance by not taking your seat. Absolutely. And you know what? If it was good enough for Constance Markovic and Liam Mellows, it's good enough for me. Can you ever see a time that Sinn Féin may can reconsider this uh, policy? Honestly, I can't. No. Not, not in your life. Not, not ever. We need to make decisions on the island of Ireland for the people of Ireland. What's happening in Westminster, if your political anorak is great crack to watch, but it's a disaster if your lives and livelihoods and rights depend on it. So no, not ever. I'm just going to stick with this theme about you not taking your seat here just for one last question. By standing aside for the SDLP or other remain parties this time around, if elected, these other parties will take their seat in Westminster and swear an oath of allegiance to the Queen. Is it fair to say maybe that Sinn Féin have adopted a double standard here um, because you know you're advocating in certain seats to vote for say the SDLP mm-hmm. so if they are elected as I said you are aware they will go in and swear that oath of allegiance which goes against every principle that you have as a Sinn Féin member. Absolutely I could never take an oath of allegiance to the British Queen her heirs and successors but what other parties do is their business we are, though, in extraordinary times, absolutely extraordinary times. And we need to change the mathematics of this place. The 18 MPs are currently 10 in favour of leave and 8 in favour of remain. Yeah. We need to change that dynamic. And therefore, we want to maximise the number of pro-remain MPs that are returned on December the 13th. Are you not denying your voters, traditional Sinn Féin voters, the opportunity to cast their vote for their candidate in the areas that you don't stand in. And the reason why I mention that, the Alliance are the only party that are contesting all 18 seats this time around. Mm -hmm. Why um, has Sinn Féin decided not to go down that road? Again, because we feel that we need to maximise the number of pro-Remain candidates. So Stephen Farry is standing in North Down. Naomi Long is standing in East Belfast. Mm -hmm. Um, we We have as many votes in East Belfast as the Alliance have in Fermanagh South Tyrone. Mm-hmm. We took what we consider the right decision to stand aside in that constituency to enable them to maximise their votes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would have been helpful had we not had, you know, that uh, that dispersal of the vote in Fermanagh South Tyrone. But we are where we are and we have to get on with it. At the end of the day, there's only two people that can win this constituency. That's me representing the 59% of people in Fermanagh South Throne who voted to remain and Tom Elliott who is a hardened leaver and who has voted in some very dubious votes he has backed the Tories when he was in Westminster and he'll back them again if he's returned so I don't I suppose allow myself to get distracted by who else is running Mm -hmm. this is between me and Tom Elliott that's what voters know that's their choice on the day and if they put an X beside me the chances their chances of returning 
and Remain candidate who'll fight for their rights and for their futures is is much stronger than it would be if they voted for another party or stayed at home. Mm -hmm. There are 102 candidates fighting for 18 seats this time around, Michelle. Currently the DUP hold 10 of them, 18 seats. You and Sinn Féin hold 7 and Lady Sylvia Herman holds the other one and she is currently not looking to be re-elected. Mm -hmm. Why is this election so important, do you believe? And what message will it send out if the Remain parties do maximise their vote? And that's regardless of whether it's Sinn Féin, the SDLP, Alliance or Greens. Mm -hmm. I suppose this election is a once-in-a-lifetime election. This is, like I said earlier, we are in unprecedented and extraordinary times. So this election means we have got to to fight against an insurmountable object almost. Over 500 of the 600 plus MPs in Westminster are English. Mm -hmm. England has a strong mandate for leave. Mm -hmm. English people are determined that they want to exit the European Union. Yeah. That's their choice. Mm -hmm. We do not have to be dragged out kicking and screaming against our wishes. And that's where we need to maximise the pro-Remain voice within our cohort of so, 18 so, MPs. So your stance and Nicola Sturgeon's stance will be pretty similar when it comes to this issue? Absolutely. However, we're in a very, and this goes back again to the influence, we're in a very strong position. We have a backstop. Nicola Sturgeon doesn't. Mm -hmm. We have our friends in the United States fighting our corner. We have 27 EU states fighting our corner. Mm -hmm. And we have a guarantee that if the North decides to go into a, a, a 32 county Irish new Irish Republic that we, we will be guaranteed automatic entry back into the EU Scotland doesn't have that either mm -hmm. so we're in a much stronger position than Nicola Sturgeon and I think that's partly to do with the fact that our MPs have been so effective mm -hmm. not involved in squabbles and our nonsense on the green benches but in real politics just you mentioned there the European Union are on record as you rightfully said um, the easiest and quickest way to solve the impasse around Brexit is a united Ireland. Has a Brexit accelerated the whole united Ireland conversation by a generation, do you think? Michelle? Absolutely. Absolutely. Unquestionably. Now, we have people in, in this constituency and across the north who would have been quite content within, uh, within the status quo. Mm -hmm. Six county north, you know, administered from London. Yeah. Who are now going... I'm not sure that that's the right thing for us anymore. Not for me, not for my children mm -hmm. or my grandchildren. And they are prepared to look pragmatically to a future that includes us having a, an island of Ireland that is governed by Irish people, where decisions are made by Irish people, for Irish people, from all shades of political opinion within Ireland. Yeah. And that we can build a future together that is a stronger one for our children. So the union that people were so passionate about for a lifetime is now becoming the union with Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's, that Brexit has undoubtedly moved that conversation on. And I welcome that. I think it's been a terrible few years. It's been challenging and there have been huge obstacles and a lot of time and emotional energy put into this. But I think we can have that conversation now in a dignified and respectful way with our unionist neighbours and talk about what we all can achieve together. Recently, we have seen an open letter, one of um, several initiatives 
um, by Ireland's future mm -hmm. to leave Varadkar and the Irish government calling for the establishment of a citizens assembly to discuss our future and prepare for a border poll. Why do you think this initiative is important and also it's been said by members of the Irish government um, that now is not the right time to discuss a potential border poll while we're still negotiating Brexit. How would you respond to that? I'd respond by saying they're wrong. There's there's never been a better time. We need to alleviate some of the concerns that, that people have, not just businesses or people involved in manufacturing or employers, but people who've, whose children were planning to go through the Erasmus programme to travel, people who were um, whose children were planning to go abroad to live or to study or whatever. I think it's it's very timely that Okra, Fine Gael, have called on their their party leader mm -hmm. to have that discussion. It's hugely important that the people in the North aren't left behind, all of us. Leo famously said in response to Ireland's Future first letter um, that never again would an Irish government leave the people of the North behind. Do you think up until now has he followed through on that promise? Not as robustly as I'd have liked to have seen. Okay. For example, I'll give you a really tangible example. When the South got additional seats in the breakup of the mm -hmm. Union and or the European Union and the British MPs, MEP mm -hmm. seats being redistributed, those there's two Ireland got two seats that mm -hmm. could have stayed in the north. Yeah. We could have had two people still two voices in Europe speaking on our behalf mm. and I think if Leo was serious about not leaving us behind that would have been a very tangible example of how he was planning to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, assuming there is a Citizens Assembly set up which there will be, it mightn't be called that, but there will be at some stage mm -hmm. to discuss um, our future and um, a border poll. How can you and Sinn Féin help reassure unionists and encourage them I guess to participate in such talks? And the reason why I'm asking that question is because speaking to different unions like obviously you do on a daily basis, um, it goes against their every grain to want to sit around a table and purely talk about Irish reunification as it would do you if you want to talk about remaining within the union. So how can you encourage participation from the likes of the DUP ministers, um, loyalism and general unionism? I think those talks then have to be um, far-reaching. We have to talk about issues that matter to them. Okay. So at the minute, we have um, an NHS that is struggling in the north, free at the point of delivery, but it could take you three or four weeks to get a GP appointment. Um, so we can't act. It's free, but we can't access it. We have a situation whereby people in the south, if you don't have a medical card, you have to pay for that consultation with the GP and then pay for the prescription. I think if we're talking about building an Irish NHS, about looking at the money we currently spend on running two systems, north mm -hmm. and south, the duplication across the board. I'm currently, um, I've been working with a community in Rosleigh, right on the right on the edge of the Fermanagh border, whose nearest town is Clonus, but who can't get a GP in Rosleigh because of the lack of GPs mm -hmm. but it would make far more sense for people to access GP services in Clonus than it would in Lisnesky. Yeah. So there's a, a, an example but we have to make, see anybody who's, who's running anything, if you run a shop, if you run a farm, if you run a business, if you run a community project, 
there's planning involved in that. You sit down, there's pros and cons to every decision you make, you talk them through, you come to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing to fear from any of that. And we've already had great examples of leadership from within the unionist community who are prepared to have those discussions. One of the criticisms that the establishment of a citizens assembly to discuss this matter would be if this is the only matter that we're going to discuss from a unionist point of view then the outcome is nearly predetermined before the conversation begins and i'm sure you've heard that being leveled on social media and elsewhere again how would you respond to that well again we just have the conversation if we were to sit, if somebody tried to sit down with me and talk me through the benefits of being in Britain. Mm -hmm. I can listen and I can also speak. Mm -hmm. I can, and do you know, there's a, quite a few myths doing the rounds. Yes. Um, the subvention, for example, yeah. when it's broken down and people say, ah, oh, sure, the, the, the South couldn't afford the North. And when you take the royal family out of it and um, the military and everything. Absolutely. Like Trident and the national mm -hmm. debt and all of that. Um, then, then that comes down to a much more manageable figure. Mm -hmm. So, when we're talking about having this conversation, the one thing we have to have is honesty. Mm -hmm. And and we need to see the books. We need to see how much the tax take that we left here. So, for example, you go to Asda in Straban, Newry or Enniskillen. Half the cars in the car park, at least, are going to be northern free state registered Very cars, true. southern registered cars. So they are contributing to a business which is headquartered in London where all of that resource is factored into a balance sheet mm -hmm. that doesn't take into consideration right, a right. spend in a, here in Ireland. Right. So if you take all of those issues and discuss them and work them through in detail and you look at then how culturally we would we would manage because we have to accept that there are people who have cultural differences to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we embrace others culture within that how do we ensure that there's um political and religious freedoms in that how do we how do we look after mm -hmm. people because i think a big fear too amongst the unionist community probably perpetuated by the british and by some very sinister elements within loyalism is that we would do to them what they would do to us and nothing could be further from the truth we know what it's like we've come through 800 years of British occupation. There have been many, many wrongs perpetrated on our people. We need to build an Ireland that doesn't just include Catholic and Protestant, nationalist and unionist, but we have people from, we have a huge East Timorese community here in this town in Dungannon. We have Polish and Lithuanian and we have all shapes and sizes and our hospitals and our healthcare facilities couldn't run without doctors from the Sudan or nurses from the Philippines. Yeah. So we have to build an Ireland that incorporates everybody mm -hmm. and that respects everybody. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody should have anything to fear from that. And, you know, when you sit down, take the time to talk these things through mm -hmm. in a respectful manner, then I think you'll win hearts and minds. And we're already doing that. And I do it every single day in life. And I know when I went in to become agriculture minister, I got a very fair hearing mm -hmm. from farmers that politically would be a million miles away from me. F famously, you're, you're um, somebody that actually stands out for me because I've always heard it and it's reported by all sections of the media even that you as an MP for Fermanagh South and Throne, you do bridge 
a lot of gaps and you know you're well received within all sections of society yeah and i suppose that's down to my upbringing back mm. to where we started yeah um it's the family that i was reared in that my parents and my grandparents gave mm. me that that was our example in life mm -hmm. i believe the adage do unto others as you would have them to do mm -hmm. do unto you is a very true one and it's the one that i bring up my own children it's a very in. simple philosophy but Absolutely. one that means an awful lot and i think if there was more of that in this place yeah. less less scaremongering and hate mm -hmm. and more of that we yeah. would all be in a better position to sit around that table mm -hmm. and talk about our future. Just uh, discussing this conversation that you and I are currently having. I've had this conversation with Doug Beattie and uh, Jeffrey Donaldson, and Meg Nesbitt, different people from a union's persuasion. One of their fears and concerns would be, and I guess legitimately, when you hear it is, if they did enter into a new Ireland, a shared Ireland, united Ireland, call it what you want, is that the erosion and loss of their British identity is something that they would be fearful of. If you try and put yourself in their shoes to answer this question, can you understand that? Um, I can understand where they're coming from. However, I don't know that it's a, a, a pertinent fear. You know, so you have orange marches in the south every year without fear of any kind of I think actually funded by the Irish government yeah, in part yeah so I think um, if people choose if they're in a silver band or in an orange mart or orange orange lodge or whatever I think there has to be ways of accommodating that and again that's where I said if we're sitting down talking about this culture and identity and all of these things have to be taken into consideration people people's Britishness has never been a problem for me. It's when that Britishness says, your my Britishness is more valid than your Irishness, mm -hmm. is where I, I that kind of sticks in me craw. Mm -hmm. and so that, that's where the whole equality aspect comes in. Absolutely. Respect of my identity and my traditions and my sporting, cultural, all of that. I'll respect theirs too, but it's mutual respect. And we've never had that in the North. I think it would only be fair now, if I did point out, do you think by Martina Anderson shouting Chucky Arla um, in the recent Sinn Féin Ardèche in Derry uh, two weeks ago would be helpful for unions to hear that? I think um, they need to understand what it means. Our day will come. The day we're looking for is a day when we can all be treated equally in this but, country. But I, but I guess from a unionist loyalist perspective, it's associated with... Um, language from our past shall i say well it's a phrase that was in bobby sands's book that's how he finished it and our day will come means that the pain and the suffering that our people have had to endure over decades is to come into an end mm -hmm. and i think if you break it down and you understand our to to try and give equivalence to our day will come with some of the the phrases that unionists are happy to bandy about is unfair. So we need to understand what it means and understand what Retina meant by it and the context in which it was said. So I know um, there's a lot of people who don't, and again, it's about understanding, it's about not education, but, but discussion, open and honest discussion that sorts out a lot of these issues. And there are still a lot of anomalies or I, I, you know, their children grow up 
thinking something to be true. And when they find out that it's not, it can kind of shake you a wee bit to find that something you understood your whole life to be wrong um, or to be misrepresented can be difficult to take. But that's where we need that very respectful discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the one word that sticks out there is what you keep in fairness to you re- repeating is respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me this, Michelle, how often do you and the Sinn Féin MP team attend Westminster? Every week. Every week? Every week. And would that be one night, two days, or is it longer or shorter? or? Mostly one night, two days, sometimes two nights, three days. Um, so, and sometimes, you know, I'm over on a Monday and Tuesday and Alicia's over, or Mickey Brady's over on the Tuesday and Wednesday, and we staggered, but there's two and three MPs over every single week. Mm -hmm. We have a full-time office Mm -hmm. in London. We have staff over there. Mm -hmm. Um, We are, you know, we're there, we're doing all of the work that other MPs do, Mm -hmm. other than take our seats on the green benches. And we have- You're lobbying behind the scenes, making contacts. Making contacts, building relationships. Um, You know, some of those, we've lots and lots and lots of meetings with all the parties. some of them are on single issue issues. So, for example, myself and Niall O'Donnell did a, a couple of visits over with Emma D'Souza and we took her around the parties and we explained the difficulties that Emma and Jake are currently mm-hmm. going through and their, how their rights are being eroded by the British government. So, you know, we, we, we all have an area of work that we're involved in and um, we, do, we do many, many, many meetings. We do... Um, we have our own events as well, so we'll bring speakers in. We'll we've launched. Martine Anderson has launched the documents that she's got legal opinion on. So we we brought Martine over. We've done you know big, big. We've done meetings in Westminster itself, but we've also done big community meetings in the likes of the Irish Centre in Camden, and we've worked with the diaspora and for the diaspora as well. Because when we talk about working for Irish people, that's not just the people in Ireland. That's the people in, in Britain as well. Yeah. And we're currently involved in the VICA campaign, the Votes for Irish mm-hmm. Citizens Abroad. So, I mean, there's an awful lot going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think for people to try and, and say, you're an MP, you don't go to work, it couldn't be further from the truth. There are times when my children kind of forget what I look like. <laughs> Who's a strange woman? <laughs> Thank God for posters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Yeah, tell me this: what's what's your perception of them? Um, how do you think people, I guess, you know, look upon you and other members of your party, um, from a British perspective? Because I, I guess just you know, if I was grew up in England, you would constantly in the eighties, nineties, and even two thousand, you'd be hearing about these bombs and shootings and these mm-hmm. mad Irish people can't agree. What, what? How do they look upon you? Do you think? I would say if they've had been fed a single um, narrative, mm. that there you could have part of that. But most people are curious, and um, the DUP's confidence and supply arrangement with the Tories made a lot of people curious about who the DUP were and what makes them tick. And when they found out what exactly they were dealing with, I think <clears throat> they were very perturbed. Um, but we we would work with again it's it's having those respectful conversations mm-hmm. and I was lucky I grew up pretty much grew up you know working back and forward to London had great friends Tony Ben 
was a gentleman. Mm-hmm. But I had friends across the political spectrum. So obviously the kind of the 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 obvious ones, Tony Benn, Ken Livingston, Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonald, Diane Abbott, yeah. knew all of those people very, very well 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I also would have knew Peter Temple Morris when mm-hmm. he was in the Tories. I knew Limbit Opic and, mm-hmm. and others within the Lib Dems, people within the Scottish Nationals, Plaid Cymru, mm-hmm. have worked across all shades of political... Have them characters, I know the ones you've name-checked there, have left, but is that element of a character now left the same? Do we need more of them? You know, I suppose I would call them characters. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we do. I think if you were to look for characters in the House of Commons now, you'd get eccentric 18th century types that don't have a grasp on reality, who look after their friends in the billionaires club while children live in absolute poverty. And brought up in their own wee bubble, absolutely, perhaps. Absolutely, yeah. and unfortunately, Westminster's kind of become a bit of a caricature. Mm-hmm. of a past yeah. you know it's not down to nabby mm-hmm. there are children starving there are people starving to death the welfare reforms that, that david cameron brought in have been hideous mm-hmm. and people have been treated despicably by a nation that's one of the richest in the world i can't believe there's so much poverty the haves the distance between the haves and the have-nots grows greater while they're squabbling over brexit well, well i obviously know your answer to this question i'm going to ask you now but i'm just going to put it bluntly to you does the British government really care about the people of all denominations living in this island? No, and they don't care about the people living in all, from all denominations in our neighbouring island either. They don't care about you if you're if you're poor, if you're a lone parent, if you're if you've disabled, if you're disabled, if you're a carer, if you're a traveller. There's lots of people they don't care about either, and we we don't want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. We want to be part of a nation that cherishes all the children of the nation equally. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've dedicated my life to and will continue to. Tamias, do you ever share on your frequent weekly trips over to England, do you ever share the same flight over with um, this 10 members of the DUP? And if you do, what are relationships like on a personal basis? We do share flights. Let us in on the secret here. Okay. <laughs> we do share flights all the time. Um, okay. And relationships. Do you have to um, I don't know that. I, well, I haven't done recently, but relationships vary. So I got on very well, obviously, with Sylvia Herman, and we've been friends for over 20 years. But, okay. um, you know, Jim Shannon and um, Gavin and a few of the. First name basis here? Oh, I. Done for a long time. I'll tell you. I'll tell your listeners a wee a wee thing that not a lot of people know. Years ago, there was a delegation of all of the parties in the north went to South Africa. Yes. And I was sitting on the plane back, and the flight from South Africa is an overnight twelve-hour flight. Okay. And I was sitting beside an MLA from the Ulster Unionist Party. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that twelve-hour flight, I fell asleep. And I can see where this is going. Well, this is where. It, <laughs> so my head went down onto his shoulder. Anybody else would have nudged me off, but he didn't. And as a result, I was nice and comfy. So I snuggled in and I woke up. <laughs> so, hold on a minute. I'm just going to stay here for anybody who's under the age of 18. Maybe now is a good time to oh, switch off. no, it was all very innocent. <laughs> but it was a great memory and we still have a wee chuckle about it when we see each other. But yes, I, I mean, life's too short to be bitchy or nasty. You have to get on with people. You have to get on with people you like, but you also have to try and get on with people who maybe aren't dying about you. So I'm, 
I, I'm a great believer in, in knocking down those barriers and trying to get to know people on a personal level. Very good, that's interesting. I enjoyed hearing that little story. I'm sure you've got many others. <laughs> okay. Not all that I could tell. No, I'm sure not. Um, Michelle, I'm going to ask you to put your Mystic Meg hat on here and we'll play a little quiz. Um, so, it's going to be, I'm going to ask you who will win a seat and you're going to give me um, an answer, hopefully. So, who will win the East Antrim seat this Thursday coming? Who's currently in it? Sammy, Sammy Wilson. I'd say Sammy's. So, yeah. Sammy's going to retain the seat. I'd say so, yeah. Um, North Antrim. Mr. Paisley. Paisley, I would imagine, especially after the canvas we did last year, I'd say that's pretty much it. You think he'll retain it? Yeah. Okay. South Antrim. Who's that, Willie? Willie McRae? Uh, um, oh, no, he's in the Lords. Who's in South Antrim? South Antrim, I actually don't know. Um, there you go. That's, that's, that's me doing <laughs> research for you. These are the you. people who have all the influence, mm. apparently, and who take their seats and we can't right. even name we'll, them. We'll skip that. East, <laughs> East Belfast is Gavin Robinson. Robinson. So yeah. what's his chances of retaining? Although I'd like to see Naomi win, I would be, if I was a betting woman, I'd be betting on Gavin. So Gavin will retain it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's one that hasn't got much media coverage recently at North Belfast. Who do you think will win oh, it? Oh, I don't know. There's a young fellow there that nobody recognises much, but I think John Finucane will do it. Um, I, but do you genuinely believe that? I believe that we're up against it. Mm-hmm. I know there's been a, a concerted effort, not just in North Belfast, but across all the constituencies of getting people on the register. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that people will recognise that the arch-Brexiteer, the person, the architect of the Leave campaign was Nigel Dodds and if we can put him out of that seat it would be a great day altogether. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh-huh. Would you, now there's an awful question to ask and, I, and I, I'm, I don't even know if I should ask it so I won't make it personal then. Okay. I was going to ask you would you sacrifice your seat if John could win in North Melbourne so I won't ask you that. Would you sacrifice one of the current seven Sinn Féin MPs sacrifice their seat if you thought John could win in North Belfast? I don't know. I don't know. I'd hate to do that to anybody. I know, and it's unfair but it's, for me and to it's ask because, you, because it's Nigel. Do you know, because Nigel Dodds was the architect of the Leave campaign, it's it's a tempting question, but I think I'll decline to answer that one. Okay. <laughs> Take <Play, play> the <laughs> fifth. <laughs> Right, moving on to South Belfast. Current MP is Emma Little Pingelli. Yeah, I'm hoping that Claire Hannah will take that seat. Would you be confident Claire will take? I'm pretty confident. Yeah, Claire's got a lot of support, and she's a very capable performer. And yeah, um, I've worked very well with Claire, and I think I think even the DUP are conceding that that seat's gone. West Belfast. Current MP is Paul Maskey. Well, obviously. that would have to be the most influential MP, wouldn't it, Paul Maskey? So he's going uh-huh, to retain for sure. Now, foil. Very interesting. Uh-huh. Very tight. You'll even admit that yourself. Absolutely. And look, we know we know that in previous elections the SDLP have benefited from wholesale tactical voting from unionists in Derry. So um so it's tight. No question it's tight. Alicia's been extremely effective, has worked really hard. I'm hoping she makes it, but I think you know, we have to be conscious that that seat could be, could be on the mar- on the. She could be like myself, either there thereabouts or not there at all. Into could play a significant role in foil. They could, but um, I think people understand that this election is bigger than any other issue. 
this is this election's about Brexit, unquestionably. And people in foil will be like my own constituents will be exponentially affected by the introduction of a border if it happens. Mm -hmm. And I think they will, you know, they might want to vote for into, but I think in this one, their heart might tell them to vote into, but their head will certainly tell them to vote Sinn Féin. Would it be fair to say that you believe a vote for into will be a lost vote because they're obviously not going to get elected, mm -hmm. so they might as well put their ex to somebody that will stand a good chance of getting elected? Absolutely, absolutely. And I know that, um, that you know, anybody who votes in this constituency for one of the three candidates, it is a waste of time. Um, they might as well be voting for Tom Elliott and in in foil I'm hoping that Alicia will do it but um, anybody who votes for Ian too like I say they're, they are wasting their time and their vote Okay moving swiftly along East Derry current or uh, Gregory Campbell, Gregory Campbell I'd imagine Gregory's going to retain that one yeah mm -hmm. You said that through gritted teeth Yeah anyway, <laughs> Lagan Valley we've got Jeffrey Donaldson And I would imagine young Jeffrey will be safe enough there too Mid Ulster, we have got one of your colleagues, Francie, Francie Malloy. Malloy. I'm pretty sure Francie will retain the seat. Nuri and Armagh, Mickey Bradley. Brady. Or Brady. <laughs> He'll sorry. be delighted. Yeah, um, sorry, Mickey Bradley Mickey. was in the undertones. Yes. Um, Mickey Brady. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey Brady, for sure. Um, again, a very. And a, an MP who's worked on all of those, that benefit stuff for us at, a, at an extremely high level and is very, very well respected. So. Who's standing in North Down? Do you know? Help me out. Um, well, Sylvia did have the seat. She's oh, outstanding. Right. Sorry, yes. Stephen Farry and the, that battle is between Stephen Farry of Alliance and Alec Easton from the DUP. Mm -hmm. And it'll be an interesting one to watch. Call it. <sighs> Mystic Meg. I would probably Easton. He Easton. came very close to Sylvia the last time. I'm writing these down because in our next interview, um, a couple of months' time, I'm going to go through okay. all these with you. <laughs> Right, we have got your colleague Chris Hazard in South Down. Yeah, I'm hoping Chris will make it across okay. the line, yeah. Strangford, who's that? Ryan Carlin is a very oh, capable okay. young candidate who's standing for Sinn Féin, um, but it's one of those constituencies that's very heavily skewed in favour of unionism, so I would imagine that the current incumbent, Jim Shannon, will hold on to that yeah. seat. Upper Ban, who's there? That's an interesting one. Carla Lockhart is standing, it was David Simpson, He's not standing this time. Carla is standing and um, the DUP would, would presume they'd be okay to take the seat. But in terms of the the, the alternative, John O'Dowd is an extremely strong performer. And I don't know, I have a wee sense, maybe it's the optimist in me, but I think that might be along the lines of 2001. And you never know, we could see a wee, a wee surprise in an upper band. Wouldn't that be great? West Throne, we have your colleague Orla Vigley. Orla Vigley, I'd say Orla will be grand there too. And I've asked the easiest question for you to ask. For Man <laughs> South Throne, we currently have yourself. Uh -huh, we do. So honestly, what are you hearing in the doorsteps? How do you think this will go for you? I think um, it'll be tight. Again, mm -hmm. like I said, the, that um, putting people, making sure people's registered and all that work has been done very consistently, very diligently by the Orange Order, the British Legion, um, you know, the, the Black Preceptory and those organisations on, on unionism. And there isn't an organisation other than ourselves doing it for nationalist people. I think um, it's really important that people vote in this election. We've, we've won it by 53 in 2001. We won it by 10 
by four, by four. four in 2010, which subsequently after the electoral court, I've had two of those um, in my political career, uh, the electoral court took my mandate down from four to one. But so, I, I was going to just ask you to mention this four votes, which I wasn't aware of that brought it down to one. For again, for um, anyone that wasn't aware of this, for for um, a Westminster election where obviously a vast uh, swathe of people can cast a vote, you got re-elected by one vote, your mm-hmm, talents. Mm-hmm. That's mental. It has happened once before in a constituency in Britain but it is mental it's mental to think when we say every vote matters we mean every well, literally every vote, vote matters. matters absolutely and, and again I guess you would be an advocate of this as well regardless of which party you vote for use your vote, vote. absolutely yeah. I say that especially to young people mm-hmm. and even if I'm in a um, controlled school uh-huh. I will say vote use your vote yeah. if you don't vote you have no right to complain i always say if you don't vote don't complain absolutely yeah. absolutely so no i encourage people to vote 59 percent of people in fermanagh south throne voted to remain within the eu and i was asked a question in an interview this week mm. and i was asked so a remain unionist who do they vote for my answer was very short and sweet me mm. short anyway mm. <laughs> unionists who want to remain within the EU yeah. need to vote for me. Because you want to remain. Yeah, this is bigger than the constitutional question. This is bigger than anything. So therefore, I'm encouraging everybody who wants to remain within the EU to vote for me. So you are purely calling this a Brexit election? It is a Brexit election. Now, in the mouth of 10 years of Tory austerity, cuts to health, to education, to all of our services, obviously those things are vitally important too. But this election was called because of Brexit. That's why it's happening. That's what people need to keep in their mind. Michelle, we're just approaching the hour mark here, and I genuinely still am pinching myself how you found the time to give us an hour of your time <laughs> um, three, four days before a general election. So I will move quickly along to the last couple of questions, if you don't mind. No problem. Um, fresh storming talks are to resume on December the 16th. Um, that's four days after the election. The general feeling among people is it's time to put green and orange issues to the one side and get the institutions, I guess, back up and running and make the system work for all citizens here. Mm-hmm. Is that a sense that you're getting on the doorstep? It is, but it has to be done on the basis of equality, on sustainability mm-hmm. and on credibility. And uh, the status quo is gone. You know, we can't go back into the assembly that we came out of. Um, we since, can't. since then, the unionists have lost their majority. Mm-hmm. What needs to happen in order for these fresh talks on December the 16th? What needs to happen to make them work? I think if the DUP have a bad day at the office, it will make them, hopefully, if not more contrite. On this Thursday, if they have a bad day in the office, you uh-huh. right. Yeah. If they're not contrite, they need to be a little bit humbled and they need to come back around that table. We had a deal in February 2018, that's almost two years ago. The DUP walked away from it. They allowed others from outside of the party to influence them and they walked away. And they've been mesmerized by the bright lights in London and they've, their focus has been entirely on London. And they've, they, it hasn't been in their interests to get the institutions back up and running again. So if they've got a bad day electorally in the Westminster elections, they will be more focused on the restoration of Stormont. Absolutely. Okay. How hopeful are you that the institutions can get up and going 
in this new round of talks? I'm hopeful, but I suppose there's two different types of hopeful. I'm really hopeful that it it is done on the basis of equality and respect. So I went into the executive 2007 to 2011. Mm -hmm. The um, First Minister then was Ian Paisley and he was more pragmatic and we could get things done. Peter, so Ian Paisley was one thing, Peter Robinson was another and Arlene Foster is something else entirely. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful that the institutions can be got up and running with the leader of unionism who's prepared to accept equality and that they don't think that they can see this as a license to discriminate. There's a myth out there, or maybe it's not a myth, you can tell us. That if the assembly was restored tomorrow morning, that everything would be perfect again in the world. Um, that our nurses would be paid their pay raise, which obviously they should get. Uh, our teachers wouldn't have to bring toilet roll into schools, etc., mm -hmm. etc. Et Is there actually money available to make a difference if the assembly went back to work tomorrow morning, Michelle? No. There isn't. No, there, there isn't. is not money to make a difference. And we've been meeting with the British and Irish governments. We've been putting that to them. We've been telling them. And I've used those words a few times, sustainability and credibility. If the Assembly can't do what it's supposed to do, it's not credible. Mm -hmm. So if it can't reduce waiting lists, if it can't pay nurses, if it can't uh, have safe staffing levels in our hospitals and nursing homes, then it's not going to be credible. So we do not have the money. I remember doing a, an event on mental health in Westminster. And people were talking about how there's no assembly and I said there is no assembly and there's no money and if we had an assembly and still had no money it's still we still couldn't make changes so we absolutely need a financial package that will work for for all of our people because if it doesn't work direct rules come well we can't have direct rule that's gone it has to be some kind of um relationship between the, the British and Irish governments. Um, the Irish government ruled direct rule out. I, they did, yeah. they did. And we, so I don't believe we'll ever see direct rule here again. I believe there'll be some kind of, of partnership arrangement. But there are other issues coming down the line this spring, the mitigation package ends. Mm -hmm. And all of the people who've been t protected against bedroom tax and who've had top-ups to benefits and all that ends as well. So mm -hmm. there's an awful lot riding on this. We have to get the assembly back up and running again, but get it running properly to look after the most vulnerable and marginalised within our society. I've got a list of things I still want to ask you, So, um, and I, I know you're pushed for time, but um, one of the interesting little things, I see you've been a very vocal supporter of um, the businessman, Sean Quinn. Um, have you, I guess, what do you think of the current attacks on Sean's, um, the people that's running the company at the minute? Um, and um, was it unfair what ultimately happened to Sean Quinn? Well, Sean Quinn did something that I don't think anybody else could have done. And when he, at its peak, the Quinn group had almost a thousand employees. There are currently over 700 employees there now. I met with the, the current leadership a month or two ago with Sean Lynch and we talked about Brexit and all the issues around mm -hmm. that. That was before the attack, the most recent attack on Kevin Lunny. I am concerned about, about people about my constituents about the directors who work in and live in my constituency and who are who for whom they and their families are under a, a threat that has to be condemned i i called immediately when i heard about the attack on kevin i called on people to um cooperate with the the um the authorities to try and find who was responsible for that 
I'm still concerned about the 700 plus jobs in, in my constituency and in, across the Quinn group, both in Fermanagh and in Gavin. Um, I think there's an awful lot of things, if you were fit to, you'd have loved to have changed. And oh, well. I, yeah. I just think all of this now is, is leaves the whole, the whole issue is one that people don't really want to talk about. And, you know, nobody wants to take sides. Yeah. And there's so much sadness in all of this. I just think that um, you wish you could turn the clock back and you can't. And uh, and at the end of the day, there are hundreds and hundreds of families who are hoping to still have employment on the other side of Christmas. And I don't want to see any further attacks on staff or management. Okay, thanks for that, Michelle. Sorry about the random nature of these quick topics here. Is the environment important to you? Absolutely. Yeah, I was when I was in Australia twenty five years ago. I lived in a house where they recycled everything, mm-hmm. and now I, I mean we have. I really don't need a black bin. I've I've reduced my waste that much. Yeah. Hugely important. This is it's about the future. I'm horrified that there's mountains of rubbish in the seas mm-hmm. around the world, and that our marine life is suffering to the extent that it is. So we have to get a grip on it. We have to punish the corporate polluters. We have to move away from individualising all of this we all have to do our bit but really and truly governments need to take action on those big corporate could you, you and the DUP maybe start swimming across to Westminster and take, instead of taking flights tell me this Michelle who do you admire in life who's your inspiration to be honest the person who has had the most impact on me has been politically has been Jerry Adams uh, you know Jerry's uh, Jerry Jerry's one of the first feminists that I got to know and he honest to God he's is a he aware of he, well I don't know if he is I don't think I've ever told him but the the person who I suppose my hero if I was to pick one would be my mother what she's come through and what she's done in her life and reared us and you know so heavily involved in our community and everything. She's an amazing woman. And getting you out in the canvas field at 10 years of age. Absolutely. Well, maybe 11. <laughs> I like that answer, by the way. You're, without our parents, we are nobody. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Give a 21-year-old Michelle Gilnew some advice, please. Don't worry about your weight and get your eyes done a lot quicker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had... Um, Laser surgery, and oh, it was very good. transformative. So yeah, yeah, don't don't hang about. Get that done much earlier, and quit worrying about your weight. Very good, very good. Last question that we always ask everybody. I'm going to put a slightly different tweak on this for you. Um, out of the ten current DUP MPs, what three would you invite to your dinner party, and describe your food menu, please, that you would cook for them? Um, well, first of all, I love a challenge. So I would have to invite Gregory Campbell, Sammy Wilson, and who else? Nigel Dodds currently, because he's still there, but he probably won't be after this election. What would I put in the menu? Uh Curry, maybe curried crocodile, yogurt. Um, (laughs) um, I'd... I'd have to give that some thought. <laughs> okay. My last question was going to be tell me a joke, but you've already done that. <laughs> <coughs> but I'm going to ask again, do you know any jokes? I do know jokes. An appropriate one, by the well, way? Well, I don't know if I know... I, my favourite joke is not appropriate. I'm not sharing that with you. Um, 
Let me see. A wee quick one, given us the time of year. What's the difference between Bing Crosby and Walt Disney? What's the difference between Bing Crosby and Walt Disney? Go on. Bing sings and Walt Disney. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I could continue this conversation for another two hours. Uh, on behalf of the Shared Island listeners and myself, uh, we wish you every success this Thursday and um, we hopefully will talk to you again sometime in the future. Thanks a million. Thanks. Can I just wish all of the Shared Ireland listeners to everybody who um, engages with you a very happy and peaceful Christmas and a 2020 uh, 20 that brings peace and prosperity to all of us. That's Thank very you. kind. Thank Early you,